Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear your mountains, the indignants of the Lord, and you, enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has indignant against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened with Shittim and Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? With calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, of the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for your incredible love and grace towards us. We ask that you would give us hearts that are ready to worship you the rest of this morning. Give Theo your words. Equip him with your spirit to deliver to us your word. Soften our hearts to be convicted and to grow in sanctification. And thank you for your son's sacrifice which gives us this union with you. We love you, Father. Thank you. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Sam. Appreciate you reading that this morning. I am uh, Theo, as Sam just said a second ago, and I'm really excited uh, to come before you guys and to bring you the word. I am relatively new uh, to Aletheia. Um, I've only been coming uh, for almost a year, uh, what feels like just a couple months. Um, and so I'm excited that the elders gave me this opportunity to come before you guys um, and to open up God's word before you this morning. The title of the message this morning is, What Does the Lord Require? What Does the Lord Require? What pleases God? And I think that right here in this text in Micah, uh, we're going to look at uh, one of the places where God describes uh, to his people what pleases him. And so I want to start off this morning uh, the way that we actually start off our community groups on Tuesday nights. Um, myself, Daniel, um, and Melanie, we lead a community group right here in the church, uh, right here in this room on Tuesday nights. And typically when we start our community group, we begin with questions. Uh, so I want to, to kind of ask you guys a couple questions just to get you thinking about a couple things before we examine uh, some different things here in this text. And my first question is this question. When you think of the defining attribute of a Christian, 
what do you think of? What's the first thing you think of when you think about, like, what does it, when you think, what does a Christian look like? What is the first thing that you think about? What's the first thing that comes into your mind? If you were to come up with a list of attributes that every believer should have, what would be on your list of attributes that every believer should have? You know, perhaps uh, when you think about how a Christian faithfully serves God, you think about the fact that this person, um, they, they, they're like really awesome and they seek God and they serve God. Like, hopefully that's what you think about when you think about a believer. And you may ask yourself a couple questions uh, whenever you look at that type of person that you know who is a Christian, who faithfully serves God. You may ask yourself, um, you know, this person that is serving God, um, does that person regularly thank God? Does that person regularly pray to God? Uh, what are the different um, aspects of their lives that show that they're really connected to the Lord? So oftentimes we see great uh, character traits in believers, um, and we don't um, oftentimes ask ourselves the question, uh, what makes that person live the way that they live? What attributes does that person have that shows that they have Christ on the inside? This morning, what I want us to look at is this idea that good character is a defining attribute of every person who names Christ. Good character is what we should all have as we show the world our priorities and our values. Good character shows our priorities and our values. And so right here in this text, I think that we're going to examine uh, what the Lord looks at whenever uh, the Lord wants to describe to us what it means to, to please and what it means to uh, give back to the Lord. What does Christian sacrifice looks like? Um, it shows us right here in this text. As I'm sure so many of you do, um, every single morning, whenever I wake up, I grab my phone. It's the first thing I do. Um, first thing I do is I grab my phone, I take a look at it, and I start scrolling through my notifications. And just a couple weeks ago, I was really trying to seek the Lord and pray and ask him, Lord, what would you have me to bring before the people this morning? And as I just began to kind of think about that, I'm going to pray through that, I felt like the Lord was leading me in a certain direction. Uh, but this particular morning, the Lord would confirm that. Because as I looked at my notifications, I saw uh, the word of the year uh, for the Merriam-Webster uh, Dictionary. And it said that the word of the year for 2018 is the word justice. It's the word justice. And I was like, man, like, this is so perfect because in this text of scripture in Micah, it begins by talking about justice. Uh, so I feel like that was one of the Lord's confirmations that this is the direction that I should, I should go down. And um, as I read the little article, the article said this. It says, our word of the year for 2018 is justice. It was a top lookup throughout the year at merriamwebster.com, with the entry being consulted 74% more than in 2017. The concept of justice was at the center of many of our national debates this past year, when people talked about racial justice, or people looked at social justice, or people looked at criminal justice, or people looked at economic justice. See, so many times as we uh, began to examine this word justice throughout our society, it was just a very, very relevant word. And it was definitely a word that was part of the discussion. This year's news had many stories involving the division within the executive branch of the government responsible for the enforcement of laws, what we call the Department of Justice. And so oftentimes, this Department of Justice is simply referred to as justice. Of course, the Mueller investigation itself is constantly in the news and is being carried out through the Justice Department. Another big news story included yet another meaning of the word justice, and um, this is the, the um, it's a synonym for judge. Um, and obviously, uh, with the Kavanaugh hearings, as they were trying to confirm him uh, as a Supreme Court justice, uh, they oftentimes, people would look up that word justice in the dictionary. 
And so justice has varied meanings that do a lot of work in the language of our society. It has a lot of lofty and philosophical and um, technical and even legal meanings. And so for all of those different reasons, this word uh, for Merriam-Webster was the biggest word of the year. It was their absolute word of the year because of so many things going on within our society. And so clearly, justice is on the minds of so many people within our society, this concept of justice. What does justice look like? And so I want you to kind of think about that because what I believe the Lord is saying in this text is that three of the defining marks of a believer is justice, kindness, and humility. Justice, kindness, and humility right here in this passage in Micah. Before we go uh, too deep into uh, chapter um, 6 and verse 6, I want us to look at who Micah was as a person. Uh, So Micah, uh, he was obviously the prophet of God right here in in the Old Testament. He prophesied uh, during the reigns of uh, the kings Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. He was uh, contemporary with both Hosea and Isaiah, uh, so they all lived at the same time. And Micah's name, interestingly enough, means who is like Yahweh. Micah's name is who is like Yahweh. And in chapter 7 of Micah, verse 18, um, which is the, the last verse in this book, it ends in this way. It says, who is a God like you? pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. Micah ends by saying his name. He says, and who is a God like you? Micah's name means who is like Yahweh. And this question really is a great way to like summarize the whole book of Micah. Because what this question does is this question draws an emphasis to God's unrivaled character and to his unrivaled actions. God is so holy, so just, and so good. And the theme of this book is both judgment and forgiveness. If you look at Micah, you see both God's judgment and his forgiveness. The ESV Study Bible actually describes the Lord in Micah as the judge who scatters his people for their transgressions and sins, who is also the shepherd king who in covenant faithfulness gathers, protects, and forgives his people. This is what the whole book of Micah is about. And so right here, um, as, we, uh, as Sam read just a moment ago, uh, starting in verse 1 of chapter 6, the Lord is talking to his people, and the Lord is uh, recounting to his people his great acts of mercy. He begins to talk about um, how when they were enslaved to the Egyptians, how he brought them out of the land of slavery. And then since then, God has been consistently revealing himself to his people, showing his grace, showing his mercy, showing his goodness. God is reminding his people of his steadfast acts of love. But what would happen is, after some time, his people would grow strong. And they would grow strong, and they would uh, suffer under the Assyrians for a while. And then eventually, they would get to a place where they had new rulers. And these new rulers established this really wealthy upper class. This upper class that had a lot of money. And consequently, because of this new wealthy upper class, there was a lot of corruption within Israel. There's a lot of corruption among God's people. And so Micah records uh, some specific sins of both the northern and southern kingdoms in Israel, and then those sins include these things. He talks about idolatry. He talks about the seizure of property. He talks about the failure of civil leadership and religious leadership and even prophetic leadership. Micah talks about the sins of the fact that the people believed that their personal sacrifice could satisfy his divine justice. And even the last thing that he talks about is how corrupt business practices and violence should not be among God's people. 
He talks about all of those things and sins within this text. And I feel like those are a lot of things that we can relate to. You know, we can relate to that, like, as Americans, all of those different things that uh, Micah began to prophesy to the Israelites about in terms of the things that they needed to reject as they began to pursue and follow God and the Lord's purpose in their lives. And so I want us to look at just uh, this little chapter 6 and just these three verses right here, um, verses 6, 7, and 8, as we look at uh, the Lord's ability to show his grace to his people. God says, I've brought you out of Egypt. I've given you godly leaders in Aaron and Miriam. I've given you godly leaders, obviously, in Moses as well. And as you follow these leaders, these leaders have shown you the way to approach God. They've shown you the way to sacrifice to the Lord and the ways in which you need to seek him. And so, as a really interesting turn, in verse 6, Micah goes from speaking to the people prophetically on God's behalf to speaking to the people on behalf of themselves. Micah kind of, he, he takes on the character of the typical Israelite. And in uh, verse 6, he begins to speak to the Lord on the people's behalf. And so in verse 6, the word says this. says, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? And so the people are like, Lord, We've seen your greatness. We've seen your mercy. We've seen what you have done. We know your grace. But what can we offer back to you? You know, what can I bring back to God? You know, like in, in effect, they're saying that they want to repay God for his acts of kindness, and they don't know exactly how to repay God for his acts of kindness. And so their automatic response to God saying, I've shown you grace, is to say, you know, we have to do something in return. We have to do something to make you happy. We have to do something to please you. And so this imaginary Jewish person um, begins to ask God, with what shall I come before you? What can I bring you, God? And then in verse 7 it says, Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He says, you know, let me, let me just up the ante a little bit. You know, what I'm going to offer to God is, is the fruit of my body. I'm going to give God my firstborn child. He says, I want to give God, you know, tens of thousands of rivers of oil. I want to give to God thousands of rams. And what that reminds me of is the fact that, so, so what I do is, is I'm a teacher. And that reminds me of the fact that a lot of teachers say that there are no dumb questions. And that is so not true. That is not true at all. I, now, obviously, whenever I'm teaching, I don't tell that to my students that there are no dumb questions. Um, I, 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 you know, show them mercy. Uh, but in actuality, like, there, there is definitely a time where people ask dumb questions. Um, and right here in this text of Scripture, this question that this imaginary Jewish person asked the Lord is a really dumb question. You know, he says, you know, Lord, shall I bring you thousands of rams? He doesn't have thousands of rams. Who, who has thousands and thousands of rams? He says, shall I bring you, um, you know, tens of thousands of rivers of oil? You know, like he doesn't have that much oil, you know. And he says, shall I give you my firstborn for my sin? And of course, you know, that is not what God requires. God is not required that you give your firstborn uh, to show your devotion to him. You know, and so these, these are dumb questions. But it's, it's a reflection of their heart because it shows that, they just want to get God off their back. They just want God just to leave them alone. They just want God to stop requiring things of them. You know, they've seen God's mercy. They understand what God has done. 
but they just want God just to leave them alone. And so they're like offering up all these hypotheticals that they know they could never do just so that God will say, that sounds good. Like, sure, do that. You know, give me everything that you have. Sure, do that. And, of course, the Lord doesn't work like that. You know, these, these are um, a series of really dumb questions, all of which the answer to the questions are no. The common sense answer is no. You can't give me thousands of rams. That won't please me. You can't give me rivers of oil. That won't please me. You can't give me your firstborn. That won't please me. God says that all of these things, the common sense answer is no. And then in verse 8, and I want us to, to kind of slow down here and, and to uh, really look at verse 8. Then in verse 8, uh, this is actually the Lord's response to those questions. In the verse 8, it says this. It says, he has told you, O man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? He says, he has told you, O man, what is good? You see, before they asked any of these questions, God had already provided an answer. He says he has already told you what his purposes are. And so many times when we come to God, we want to, you know, like do all these extravagant things for God because we realize that he's been good to us. Uh, we realize that God has, like, given us amazing things. We want to, like, really show our devotion by going to the extremes. And God says, you don't have to invent a new way to approach me. You don't have to invent a new way to make me happy, to please me. God says, I've already revealed to you my purpose and my plan. I've already shown you what is good. You know, God has revealed to us in his word his will. And God has revealed to us in his word um, his ways and those things that please him. And so he says, he's already shown you what is good. We don't have to blaze a new path. We just have to follow God's path, which has already been walked over by thousands and thousands of people. You don't have to go a new way. God has already shown us his way. He says, and what does the Lord require of you? And God's answer, he ignores the ramps. He says, what does the Lord require of you? He totally ignores this mention of rams. He ignores the mention of these rivers of oil. God, in this verse, in, in verse 8, he says nothing about I'm having to give your firstborn. God ignores all of those questions. He totally glosses over those things. And what he is saying is it is better to do right than to perform rites, than to perform rituals. It is so much better to do um, right by your neighbor, to do right by God, than it is to give sacrificially in all of these really extreme ways. He says it's far more desirable to be merciful than to sacrifice. And this is also what the Word tells us in 1 Samuel. And in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22, uh, the Word says this. It says, And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. Right here in this text, he says, the best thing you could do before God is to obey him. The best thing you can do is to listen to his voice and to respond to his kindness. To obey is better than to sacrifice. He doesn't need those rams and those rivers of oil. What God wants is our heart. What God wants is our devotion. He says, listen to me, follow me. That's ultimately what I want. He says, what does the Lord require of you but 
to do good, to listen to him, to delight in his voice, to do those things which please him. And he begins to go into detail with three things. He talks about justice, he talks about kindness, and he talks about humility. And so let's begin by looking at justice. As I read through this passage, one of the things that stood out to me was the fact that this verse says, do justice. What does the Lord require of you, O man, but to do justice? It says, do justice. And when I read do justice, I was like, wow, like, that's like really challenging, this idea to do justice. It's challenging because it would be so much easier if the love, kindness, and the do justice were reversed. It would be so much easier if instead of saying do justice, it said love justice. It's a lot easier to love justice than it is to do justice. You see, loving uh, justice is easier because to do justice means that I have to actively promote the good of my neighbor. To do justice means I have to go beyond myself to do something that's right. If I was just to love justice, that's like an internal thing. That's, that's, that's like a heart thing. That's like an invisible thing to, to love justice. But God goes a step further. And God says, what I require of you is to do justice. You know, so many people uh, would say, man, I love justice. You know, doing what's right is so good. Obviously, our society um, this past year really looking up this word justice so many times shows that this is a great value in our culture. And obviously, so many people clearly love justice and they want, you know, things to be done the right way. But how would it be for you if you were to go up to a person and you were to say to this person, um, do you love justice? And the person would say, yeah, I love justice. And then you were to go up to the, that person, like the average person would probably say yes. And then you were to continue with that person to say, you know, you love justice, so how do you do justice? You know, like if this is something that you love and something that you value, how do you how do, you do this? What, what do you do in terms of um, make justice real for your life? You know, how do you make sure that those in your community are treated fairly, equally, and properly? What do you do in that regard? How are you an instrument of justice? You know, how are you used by God to bring equality into the lives of other people? You know, if you were to ask those questions to the average person, that conversation would become very awkward very quickly because it's very easy for us to affirm this idea of loving justice, but it's very difficult for us to say the ways in which we do justice. And what the text tells us here is that we should do justice. Recently, uh, the co-founder of Desiring God uh, Ministries, his name is John Bloom, he wrote this. He said, it's much easier to love justice than to do justice. It's much easier to rant against injustice than to take meaningful action to stop it. Ranting costs us little to nothing. Doing justice makes personal, time-consuming, heart-rendering demands on us. Loving the idea of justice is cheap. But doing justice almost always requires loving a vulnerable or oppressed person in a way that is personally costly to us. True love is not cheap. So God tests our hearts by making justice concrete, something we must do. And I think that that quote really gets to the heart of this issue is that doing justice requires us to go outside of ourselves. It requires us to give of ourselves. You see, it's costly to step into the middle of a situation and to stop injustice. 
But though it's costly, it's also Christian. See, when a person has been made right with God, one of the things that manifests itself in that person's life is the desire to do right by men, the desire to do right by people, the desire to do right uh, by those that you come to contact with. You know, you won't want to seek dishonest gain. And you want to deal honestly and justly with your family and your friends and your classmates and your employer. That person who wants to do justice, they promote fairness and equity among all of God's creatures. You see, God in the Old Testament, and this is something that, that really, really stands out. God in the Old Testament, he spends hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages telling his people what it looks like to be just and telling his people what it looks like to honor him and to serve him. That's part of the reason why we have the books of uh, Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Numbers. It's just a whole series of laws showing God's people this is what justice looks like. This is what it means to live before me. This is what it means uh, to serve and seek God and to promote uh, the good qualities of your fellow man, your fellow person. You see, God does this because it is the natural tendency of every person to degrade their fellow person, to degrade their fellow man. It's so easy for us to elevate ourselves at the expense of others. You know, just, just this past week, I was listening to this, this podcast, um, and uh, it was a, a history podcast. Uh, when I was at UF, I was a history major, and so I'm a really big history nerd. And so I was listening to this, this history podcast, and one of the things that this podcast talked about was it talked about this trail of tears um, that Native Americans went on as they were pushed uh, from the eastern side of the country uh, where the colonial uh, Europeans would, uh, would, you know, immigrate into, and they pushed all the Native Americans westward. And I read about how um, in the south, um, as the Africans were brought over to become slaves, uh, they would take them from the ports up in, like, the the northeastern part of the country, and they would ship them from those ports into different uh, states in the south um, as they would work on the, the plantations and things. And that just reminded me, um, as I looked at those kind of historical examples, it just reminded me of this, this really contemporary idea that it's so easy for us to elevate ourselves at the expense of people. You know, it's so easy for, you know, those, those early Americans uh, to elevate themselves at the expense of other people so that they can gain profit and they can gain money and all of those things. You know, like that, that is the natural state of man. Maybe, you know, we don't do things as extreme as that in our current society by and large, uh, but definitely it is the desire of our hearts uh, to, uh, to elevate ourselves as we lower other people. And so um, one of the, the really um, amazing quotes that just reminds me of this idea um, is this um, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. quote, super famous. I'm sure you, you've heard of it. Uh, you probably heard it um, in school once upon a time. Uh, he, he says this, he says, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And so one of the big civil rights ideas was this idea that, you know, for there to be injustice in any part of our country is a threat to justice everywhere. You know, justice should be equal. Justice should be for all. And uh, the, the New York pastor, Tim Keller, um, who is a fan favorite of a lot of people in this community, um, he wrote these words. Tim, Tim Keller says, for indeed grace is the key to it all. It is not our lavish good deeds that procure salvation, but God's lavish love and mercy. That is why the poor are as acceptable before God as the rich. It is the generosity of God 
the freeness of his salvation that lays the foundation for the society of justice for all. Even in the seemingly boring rules and regulations of tabernacle rituals, we see that God cares about the poor, that his laws make provision for the disadvantaged. God's concern for justice permeated every part of Israel's life, and it should also permeate our lives. That's a quote from, from Tim Keller that I feel like really like summarizes like this, this idea like really, really well. Is that you can't escape this idea in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, this idea of justice for all people. It's very consistent, very constant, the fact that God is promoting justice everywhere. I wanted to um, just to, just to, 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 to draw your minds to the, this story. Um, there's, there is this... Um, this professor, um, this doctor, this actual president of a seminary up in uh, the North Shore of Chicago, uh, his name was uh, Dr. Greg Waybright. And Dr. Greg Waybright, he tells this story um, about his community. Uh, just a couple years ago, he told this story. He told the story about justice within his community um, over there at the Trinity International University. He says, as Christians, we always stand against injustice and promote the welfare of our neighbor." On April 24th, 2005, the third of three hate letters was received by some of the students at the university where I taught. Three students of color received Columbine-like letters warning of escalating violence against them. This was around the anniversary of both the Oklahoma City bombing and Adolf Hitler's birthday. Dr. Waybright received a call from his provost who read to him the entire hate letter. And he says, uh, he says that he rushed off the tennis court where he was um, just playing tennis. And he ran back into his office. And when he came back into his office, uh, he looked on his desk. And on his desk uh, was his baccalaureate speech. Uh, this was towards the end of the semester. Um, obviously, it, it, was, it was in April. And he was about to give a baccalaureate address. And as he looked on his desk, um, as he sat down to kind of contemplate what they needed to do in response to these hate letters, um, he was like stared in the face in a sense by these words out of Micah. He saw Micah 6.8 sitting on his desk. And he had to ask himself, what does it mean to live out this text in the face of adversity, in the face of this situation of his students being um, persecuted and attacked by these hate letters? And so he decided that uh, the best thing that he could do is to get his students to safety by evacuating the entire campus. And so much to his surprise, once he evacuated the campus, uh, there was a couple uh, little newspapers that picked up this story. Um, it was in the L.A. Times, and it was in the New York Times. Um, and that was much to their surprise. Within a couple days, uh, both Jesse Jackson and uh, Geraldo Rivera came on their campus to interview and to talk to his students. This, was, this had become a really big deal out of nowhere, totally unexpected. And so as they began to do an investigation and figure out where these letters came from, they would find out that a short time later uh, that these letters actually came from one of the students at his university. And so it was actually not a North Shore of Chicago hate group, as they assumed that it, it would be. It wasn't one of those hate groups. It was actually a female student of color who wrote those three hate letters. She was trying to create a racial problem within that community. See, Dr. Waybright called together all of his students of color, as well as his administrators, and he began to listen to the students' stories. And the students told stories of frustration and shame. They felt themselves to be in the community, but not part of the community. They felt as though people were blind to them and never noticed them. 
And so the university administrators realized that they had a problem and that they needed to address this. And so they took a lot of steps uh, to, to make the students of color feel more integrated into their community. And what would happen is as they began to take all these steps to rectify this problem, there were two different groups of people that would come out against these actions. Uh, one of those groups of people were actually um, a group of um, white evangelical preachers in that area um, from the, the different churches in that northern part of Chicago. And they were against uh, what he was doing because they felt like, you know, you can't have growth in a church group or you can't have growth in a church or, you know, growth even in a, in a uh, Christian school when a place that's diverse. You know, diversity doesn't produce growth. And so they were like, why are you doing all these things? Like, just, just stop all this because if you continue to, to take those steps, you're never going to grow and it's never going to be a strong university. So that was one group. And then the other group of people that were against it were actually uh, some African-American pastors in this area who also came against all these actions because they would tell those students of color that went to their university and that worshiped at their churches, they would say, why are you still there? You know, like there will be no meaningful changes done because they don't really care about you. You know, and there's nothing that they're ultimately going to do to promote love for you. And so Dr. Waybright had to listen to, um, to the, the, the problems and the concerns that these two different groups uh, brought to him. And he had to kind of address that as well, in addition to trying to fix the issue among his students. And so what Dr. Waybright decided to do is he decided to persist in those actions. And he persisted in those actions because he knew from the word that God desires for all people to be in his family. And God sees great value and every single person. And so he decided to continue uh, to, to go down the road of trying to rectify that situation. And he recounts how God shows mercy and has shown love all the way to the cross to every single person. And so what he wanted to have on his campus was a place where there was justice and equity, which marks the community of God. And so he wants to make sure that all people acted with justice and that they were supporting all of those who are hurting and struggling. And so I tell that story to make you think about this idea, uh, to have you think about this idea of what does it mean to do justice? When you ask yourself this question, how do you live out this verse? How do you obey this text of, of Scripture? You know, what does it mean to do justice? Do you merely try not to do injustice, or are you active in your pursuit of justice for others? We should ask ourselves this question, do I pursue justice for others? And what does doing justice look like for me? Within my context, um, I work at um, a little school where there's about uh, 1,200 students, 400 in high school. I work primarily uh, with upper high school students. And so as I ask myself this question, I think about what does doing justice look like within my context? There's so many students that I work with who come from some really difficult family situations, and there's so many students who come from good family situations who just have a really tough time, you know, interacting with their peers, have a really tough time navigating the system. Uh, maybe, you know, their foundation wasn't as good before they came to us, and now that they're with us, you know, in our school, they're struggling, you know, to like fit in academically. And so for me, I have to ask myself, what does doing justice look like within that community? What does doing justice look like for, you know, my 10th graders and my 11th graders and my, my seniors? Uh, what can I do to promote 
their welfare? What can I do to, pr- to promote um, their good? That's the question that I think all of us should ask. How do we do justice within our situation and community and amongst the group of people that we interact with? But not only does Micah in verse 8 say that one of the things that the Lord requires is to do justice, but he also says to love kindness. He says to love kindness. And in contrast to the previous section of this verse come the words, Love kindness. You see, again, it would be so much easier if these two words were reversed. If instead of saying love kindness, it would be so much easier to say do kindness. You know, if we if it was to say do kindness, you know, that would be straightforward. That would be simple. If it were to say do kindness, you know, like we could all do something kind to those people that we come into contact with. But it doesn't say do kindness. It says love kindness. And love kindness once again, gets at the heart of the issue. And um, it's so amazing, you know, just how God reveals to us his word. You know, loving kindness means that for us as believers, we have to have an affection for kindness. It's not just something that we do, but it's something that we love. It's something that we care about. It's something that is deep in our hearts. And this affection for kindness, it should shape our actions and our thoughts. You see, he tells us to love kindness. The Christian loves his neighbor as himself. You know, if there is an act of kindness to be done, what a believer does is a believer um, delights to go off and to do that act of kindness. You know, like it it really uh, motivates them to go off and to perform kindness. If, If someone's misery can be alleviated or a good act can be performed, or even um, just something um, merciful can be done on behalf of another person, that's what a believer wants to do. A believer in their heart loves kindness. You see, God does not delight in a person who is brutal, in a person who is harsh, who is unforgiving, a person who is unloving or hateful or bitter, hard, oppressing or cruel. God doesn't delight in those people. What God delights in is he delights in people who love kindness. As believers, we're not to be judgmental. Uh, we're not to be irritated easily. We're not to have a critical attitude towards any person made in God's image. What God has called us to is God has called us to kindness. He's called us to mercy. At all times, we should be the kind advocates of all of those people who are marginalized or oppressed in our society. And that reminds me of uh, this really, really famous story that I'm sure most of you guys know. Uh, it's this story in Luke. Um, it's actually the story of the Good Samaritan. And when you look at this story of the Good Samaritan, there's a couple things that stand out. Uh, one of the things that really stands out is when you get to this story, you have uh, this, this, this priest who goes by on the other side of this person who had been beat up. And you have this Levite who goes around on the other side of this person who had been beat up. And then you have this person who is a Samaritan. And the Samaritan, when he sees that this person um, has been stripped and robbed, um, had fallen among thieves, the Samaritan goes to that person, puts that person on his animal, and then takes that person to an inn, takes care of that person, bandages that person's wounds. And then when that person has, uh, when the Samaritan has to leave, what the Samaritan does is he gives the innkeeper money and says, whatever this person needs while I'm away, 
take care of it. This is enough money to take care of this person. And what really stands out is the fact that in that passage, um, the reason why Jesus tells the story in the first place is because there was a person who stood up to test him, and that person said, you know, what is, um, you know, like, like, who is my neighbor? You know, you said that I should love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and I should love my neighbor as myself, he says, and who is my neighbor? And then Jesus gives him this story. And Jesus says to this person, he says, and who proved himself to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? Who proves himself to be a neighbor to that person? You know, he flips the question on his head. The guy who tested Jesus says, you tell me who is my neighbor, who I should be kind towards. And Jesus flips the question by saying, I want to ask you, who proved himself to be a neighbor to the man who fell among thieves? You know, he says the most important thing for you is that you show love and kindness to every person that you come to contact with, no matter who they are. Jesus doesn't tell us in the story that the person who fell among robbers was Jewish. He doesn't say if it was a priest, doesn't say if it was a Levite. He just says it was a person. And he says that this, this Samaritan, this person who was really despised by Jewish people within their culture, this Samaritan of all people was the hero of this story. You know, it, it would be much like for us, it, it would be, you know, kind of like this person who comes from a completely different religious background being the person who's the hero of this story. And so Jesus shows us in this story that what does it mean to love your neighbor? Well, love towards your neighbor is sacrificial love. You know, if you truly love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, if you truly love your neighbor as yourself, you're going to bandage his wounds and you're going to put him on your own animal and you're going to take him to the inn. You're going to give money to the innkeeper so that he can take care of this person for however long it takes. You know, Jesus gives us this really extreme example of love in that story. This is a really extreme example to make this point that true love is sacrificial. And true love gives everything it could give on behalf of another person. This is what it means to love your neighbor, Jesus says in this story. And it's so challenging to love like that. It's so challenging to truly, sacrificially give of yourself towards another person. It is not the natural state of humanity to love like that. And so, basically, in summation, Jesus, in this story, um, in this parable in in Luke, uh, the the parable of the Good Samaritan, he shows us what kindness is without boundaries. You know, this is kindness without boundaries. And I think that it's so important that as the followers of God, we are warriors of justice and of kindness. That is what God has called us to. The great hymn writer, uh, Frederick Faber, He wrote these words. He said, kindness has converted more sinners than zeal, eloquence, or learning. Kindness is what brings people to God. It is the kindness of God that saves us. And it is the kindness of God's people that brings them into relationship with God. And so Micah says, do justice. He says, Love kindness, or in some translations it says, love mercy. He says, do, do justice, love kindness, love mercy. And then he finishes by saying, and to walk humbly with your God. To walk humbly with your God. And this, this, this uh, walk, as described here in the Bible, is a metaphor for the life of faith. Uh, so oftentimes the Bible calls us uh, to walk. And this, this humble walk with God is an essential inward 
invisible action. This is something that is so important to us because the most needful thing that we can possibly do each and every day is to walk humbly with God, is to know God through Christ and to walk humbly with him. We have a lot to be humble about when we think about it. You know, we as people, you know, we're poor, pitiful, we're weak, we're wayward, uh, we oftentimes go our own way. And this is what the Lord wants us to see is that our humble walk with him should be natural. Because if you truly know yourself, you know that there's nothing that you could bring to God that'll be of any significance. Is we should be humble because we have so much to be humble about when we truly know ourselves. C.S. Lewis has said this. He says, we must lay before him what is in us, not what ought to be in us. And what is in us is weakness. What is in us um, are things that are desperately in need of God's intervention. See, there are a few essential things that we should think about when we think about this, this humble walk. Um, and as you think about, you know, what does it mean to walk humbly with your God? Well, one thing that you have to really um, examine, first of all, is the reality of God. You know, the, 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 the nature of God being present constantly. You know, the Lord is everywhere. He is always near. God is real. You know, Hebrews eleven six it says this, And without faith it is impossible uh, to please God, for he who comes to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. You know, you, to come to God, you must know that God exists, that God is real. That God is more real than this floor that I'm standing on. God is near. God is real. And so if you want to walk humbly with him, acknowledge his presence. Acknowledge the fact that he's not a myth or a fable like so many of us uh, would would have us to believe. But he is the ever-present, ever-near God. You know, in in Genesis, uh, the Bible talks a lot about walking with God. Um, it's, it's, it's a really interesting place to, to look at this walk with God. Because in Genesis, uh, one of the, the things that you, you may recall is that after Adam and Eve sin, it says that the Lord is walking through the garden. And he's looking for Adam and, and Eve. And so we see, the walk, uh, we see that God walks with Adam and Eve before they sin. He was trying to find them um, as after they had sinned. And then in Genesis 5, uh, verse 22, it says, Enoch walked with God, and then he was not. And then in Genesis 6, verse 9, it says, Noah walked with God. And then in Genesis 24, verse 40, it says, Abraham walked with God. And then in Genesis 48, verse 15, it says, Isaac and Jacob, who was renamed um, Israel, that they walked with God all the days of their life. Um, they, they were faithful to the Lord, and they walked with God all the days of their, their life. And so this walk with God is a very consistent biblical thing. You see, godliness is born and matured in the presence of God, in this walking with God. Spurgeon, he he wrote these words. He said, the godly man is moved to action, helped with endurance, nerved with courage, fired with zeal, elevated with devotion, and purified in life by the presence of God. And walking with God is just that. It's just acknowledging his presence and just being with him each and every day. See, the fact that God sees us and knows us is a great encouragement to be pure. It's a great encouragement to be devoted to him. God wants to be our companion 
on our life journey. And he wants to be constant in our thoughts. And when you look at that word walk, you know, this walking is, is so interesting because to walk is so easy. You know, to walk is just to go at the common pace of life. To walk is just to make gradual, continual, slow progress. And he says, walk with God. This isn't hard for us just to walk. He says to walk humbly with your God. And this humble walk is a call to be lowly, to be reverent in God's presence. This is a call to remember that we are feeble and weak and that God is mighty and all-powerful and strong. And so we humbly walk with him, knowing where we are and who he is. You see, we should be overwhelmed that God would take the time to listen to us. Like, that that should lead us to be humble. Because just the fact that God would just take the time just to listen to our prayers and just to know who we are as people, it's just really, really amazing. We should be humble because we're dependent on God for our every need, everything that we have, uh, the word tells us in, in, in 1 Corinthians, it says, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why then do you boast as though you didn't? You know, he says everything you have is, is from God. And so that should lead us to, to being um, humble because we know that we're dependent on him for all of our needs. You see, we should constantly be in a state of gratitude and thankfulness because he is the giver of every good gift. And he has given us so much in our lives. As we're humbly walking with God, we should, we should remember that, you know, we can never be independent of God. Like, there's never a moment in my life where I do anything apart from Christ. You know, once he saved me and sealed me and marked me off as one of his own, I was permanently in his family. I'm never independent of him. I'm always present with God. I'm always with him. You see, we should be captivated by love. And we should submit to his will and both actively obey his will and passively agree with the things that he brings into our lives as we seek him and his purposes. What does it mean to be humble? I think another thing that it means is it means that we should like patiently endure affliction. You know, there, there are times in our lives where like difficult circumstances happen and God has called us in those difficult circumstances and times just to seek him and to be patient as we go through difficulties. So many people get so angry with God whenever negative things happen in their lives, whenever uh, bad things happen. But in those times, what we should do is we should be so thankful to God um, that he is patient with us despite that. He's patient with us despite our reactions to those things that come into our lives. You know, we shouldn't let trials cool our love towards God. You see, it is the proud heart that makes of itself a God and says, you know what, God? You should give me whatever I want. You know, like I'm so angry and upset that you allow these difficult things to happen. You know, that's a proud heart that says that. But the heart that truly is humble and seeking the Lord says, just like Job. You know, Job says, the Lord gave and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Whatever you bring, God, I'll take. And whatever you take away, I'll receive as well. And on the flip side, not only in adversity, in adversity should we be humble and seek God, but also in prosperity. And so on the flip side, you know, when we're happy and things are going well and we're satisfied, 
Um, we feel like everything is like awesome and great in our lives. And those times as well, we should acknowledge that the reason why we have whatever we have is because of God. Like still, even in those moments, like God has given you whatever good gifts you have. And God has given you whatever great things come into your lives. We should always reject this attitude um, that we have done anything by ourselves, anything independent of God, anything without this humble dependence on his grace and his mercy. Matthew 5 says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. God has called us to be humble. God has called us to be meek. There's this great um, Indian Christian um, who wrote these words. He says, Do you think the devil is impressed by anyone's Bible knowledge or degree certificates? Not at all. Satan fears only holy, humble men and women who know God. That is what the enemy fears, is humble people whose simple purpose is to know God. And so I want to to ask you this question. Are you walking with God? You know, do you seek him every day? Do you know him in the person of his son? Have you begun to just acknowledge all of his acts of kindness and mercy and grace? You know, do you walk humbly with your God? If you want to be joyful and full of great spiritual strength, you have to spend your life with God. You have to spend your life with him like when you wake up and when you lie down, when you go to campus or you go to the grocery store um, or you may uh, even go to work, when you go to a restaurant, when you go to get gas, in every single place in which you walk, that you go into in life, you seek God. You are devoted to God and you rely upon his presence. Um, you pray to him. You seek him in all of those mundane things that happen from Sunday to Saturday and all of those things. You just slowly walk with God. You slowly progress in your relationship with him. I think that the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. And so I'm just going to just uh, just super fast read to you a couple scriptures that talk about our walk with God just to leave you with this lasting impression that this walk with God is a great value for us as believers. Most of these things come from Paul's letters. And obviously I, I could have looked at um, the entire New Testament, but I decided just to isolate Paul's letters. In Paul's letters, he says this. He says, walk in the footsteps of faithful men like Abraham in Romans 4.12. He says, walk in newness of life after conversion and baptism, Romans 6.4. He says, don't walk according to the flesh, but walk according to the spirit, Romans 8.4. Walk properly, as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, sexual immorality, sensuality, quarreling, or jealousy, Romans 13.3. Walk in love as you try not to offend your brother with what you eat. Romans 14, 15. Walk by faith, not by sight. 2 Corinthians 5, 7. God has promised to walk with us eternally. 2 Corinthians 6, 16. Walk by the Spirit who enables us to reject the desires of the flesh. Galatians 5, 16. Remember, we once walked according to the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the Spirit who is at work in the sons of disobedience. Ephesians 2, 2. We are the workmanship of God created in Christ to walk in the good works which God prepared beforehand for us to walk in. Ephesians 2.10. 
We ought to walk worthy of the Lord, which accords with our calling. Ephesians 4, 1. Walk in love just as Christ loved us. Ephesians 5, 2. Walk as children of light. Ephesians 5, 8. Walk in wisdom. Ephesians 5, 15 and Colossians 4, 5. Don't walk in the idleness which leaves biblical traditions in the dust. 2 Thessalonians 3, 6. Don't walk as a busybody, but be busy at work. 2 Thessalonians 3, 11. And then finally, in Colossians, walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him by bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. That's Colossians 1, 10. The humble walk that God has called all of us too is so easily neglected because it's invisible, you know, it's hidden from public eyes, it's something that's inward and spiritual, and it's so easily overlooked. Performing all types of religious acts and missing the daily walk with God is vain. So many people miss this essential aspect of the Christian life, and that is to understand that the most that the safest place you can possibly be is at God's feet as he sits on his throne. We just humbly wait upon him at his feet. At the church um, where I grew up, I can re- I, as I think about this idea of, of what does it mean to walk in humility, uh, to humbly walk with God, I was thinking about, you know, at this church where I grew up. And at this church where I grew up, one of the things that really impressed me about the people that um, I was with in that uh, community was the fact that there was a group of senior adults who were um, seated um, in these um, little like foldable chairs um, on the edge of like our church property. And the very first time that I'd ever went to that church um, it was for this big youth rally. And we were like running around and playing games and like eating Taco Bell and, uh, you know, just, just doing all these like really fun things. We were like jumping around like in this like blow up tent and all these things. And there was just this group of uh, these senior adults, and they were just sitting down, and they are just watching us. Um, and they were just, like, making sure that everything's going smoothly, that we we're all safe. And as I would continue to grow in that church and grow up in that church, uh, what I would discover is that everything that the youth did, those senior adults supported. You know, they were not only there for that, like, uh, that youth rally, uh, but they were the people that gave to us so that we can go on mission trips um, overseas, on mission trips um, in the country. Uh, they gave in so many ways to us to be able to give us the ability to do those things. There were people that, that just loved us and were kind to us and showed us just the tender mercies of God. Um, you know, I, I grew up in, in, a, in a fairly big youth group, and there was a fairly big pocket of senior adults as well. And they were so faithful to love us and to point us to God in every single thing that, like, they would do. And all they did was just humbly walk with God. They weren't trying to be showy. They weren't trying to, you know, like, um, like really like parade around the church and say, you know, I just gave, you know, $300 to this kid so he can go off to camp or so, so, so he can go to uh, Lithuania or like all those myriad of things that we did. All they did was just humbly love us. And so it's my prayer that here at Aletheia, uh, we would have the same impact that those people had um, in and around our city. It's my hope that uh, God keeps us underneath uh, the gospel and that we will be, as we stand underneath God's gospel, that we would be both um, convicted and not condemned. I pray that God uh, will grant us godly sorrow 
when we sin, quick repentance, and great joy in honoring him. Let me, let me end this morning uh, by reading to you one more quote by Spurgeon as he talks about what it means to humbly walk with God. Spurgeon says, friend, if you are walking humbly with God, you have taken your right place as a sinner condemned by the law. For certainly you have broken the law, and that law requires absolutely perfect obedience, which you have never rendered and never will render. God's law, then, has condemned you. Have you condemned yourself? Have you taken your place as a condemned one and pleaded guilty before God? If you have not done so, your view of yourself differs from God's view of you. Your view of yourself is a proud one. You are not walking humbly with God and you are not saved. He that never felt himself lost never felt himself saved. He who never confessed himself guilty has never been forgiven. He who has never accepted the sentence which dooms him has never received the pardon which absolves him. Humbly walk with God. Pray with me as we transition, as the worship team comes back up. Lord, we thank you uh, for bringing us to this place this morning. We thank you for your word. Father, I pray that we would just be a place where we lead people to become growing followers of Christ as they pursue you in love. May we be a church for the, the campus and the community. And I hope that this morning all the people that were in this room have been engaged with the living God. And that we've been encouraged, Lord, by your great justice and mercy. And we ask that you would equip us to be the agents of justice and mercy in this church as you desire to walk with us in humility under your great power. I pray that all of those people who are gathered here today are empowered to live their lives daily for you and that they would seek you for your own sake. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name, amen.